This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're joined by writer and academic Tim Kendall to talk about The Spire by William Golding. Published in 1964, The Spire tells the story of Jocelyn, the dean of a medieval cathedral. He believes he's been tasked by God to build the tallest spire in England, but its construction is plagued by problems, just as Jocelyn is plagued by visions both heavenly and otherwise. As the spire grows, the pillars holding its weight start singing ominously, but still Jocelyn presses ahead. William Golding was born in Cornwall in 1911, After becoming a schoolteacher in Salisbury in the 1930s, he was drafted into the Royal Navy for his wartime service, during which he participated in the Normandy landings on D-Day. He began writing in the 1950s and published his first novel, Lord of the Flies, in 1954. He won the Booker Prize in 1980 for Rites of Passage, beating Anthony Burgess's earthly powers. He died in 1993, aged 81. Tim Kendall is Professor of English at the University of Exeter. He's currently preparing the correspondence between William Golding and his editor Charles Monteith for publication by Faber and Faber. His next book, co-authored with Fiona Matthews, is Black Ops and Beaver Bombing, an exploration of Britain's wild mammals. It's forthcoming from One World in spring 2023. Head to the description of this episode for all relevant links and to see a list of all the books mentioned in the discussion. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation, and I spoke to Tim Kendall in September 2022. Tim, welcome to the 99 Novels podcast. Uh, we're talking today about William Golding's The Spire. Um, we'd like to find out how, how you first discovered the book. Um, so how how did you how did you come across the spire and and what did you first make of it? Well, I can tell you exactly when I read it. It was it was the summer of nineteen eighty five, and I I was fifteen. And um, this is kind of my origin story, really. Uh, my my mother used to go off to the library once a week and come back with armfuls of romantic fiction, and she would then you know having done all her housework, she she she'd lie on the sofa with an apple and start attacking the pile. And you could shout in her ear and she wouldn't be aware that you were there. She was gone. She was in way in another world. Anyway, so um, I, wa- I, was, so I was 15. I was not a reader. And, uh, of course, romantic fiction probably isn't the genre to persuade boys that they should become readers. Um, and um, what happened was, for some reason, she'd brought home amidst these Catherine Cookson novels a copy of The Spire by William Golding. And he, she'd started reading it and realised her mistake quite quickly and put it to one side. So, of course, that was exactly the book I was interested in. And I, I thought, oh, OK, that, you know, let me pick this up and have a look. And, I mean, quite literally, that, that changed my life. Um, I hadn't had any notion I was going to read English at A-level, let alone university. And I, so I was reading it and I thought I didn't realise... This is this is why people read books. It was it was as fundamental as that. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies. It, it was revelatory, and so I read it and I read it again, and I obviously got as many golden novels as I could through the library system, and um, read them. And Golding became my, I guess, my secret passion. Um, I read his contemporaries as well: Graham Greene, Iris Murdoch, Anthony Burgess. I read them all, but Golding always remained the uh, you know the one and and of golding's novels it was the spire 
the first one that I'd read that continued to be, and even to this day, is still my Desert Island novel, I guess. Even among Golding's other work, it's it's a very strange book. I think if anybody has read any any of Golding's other novels, particularly The Lord of the Flies, they would be quite shocked at how, how the spire is written. What can what can the reader expect to find in the spire? And, and how does it fit in with Golding's other work, do you think? Well, I think Golding, whether you like him or not, uh, is it, you have to concede that one of the things about him is he takes the word novel at its word. You know, every, he's not he's trying very hard not to write the same book twice. And so I think you're right, absolutely right. The Spire feels worlds away from a novel like Lord of the Flies. Um, In a way, describing the plot of a Golding novel, it would be a bit like describing the plot of A Clockwork Orange without mentioning anything about the language. You know, it's it's almost sometimes beside the point. But the because the style of the novels is uh, is so distinctive and and if you like the language games that that are being played uh, is so fundamental. Um, but in 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 its basic setting, uh, the spire is a thir- we're back in medieval England, late thirteenth century. Um, we're in Salisbury, although Salisbury isn't named; it clearly is Salisbury. And what the novel is interested in is how do you build a spire on the cathedral, um, one hundred and fifty years after the the, the the cathedral has been built, um, on a building which has no adequate foundations. So the story, which actually the novel refers to in passing very early on, is that a chap was riding his horse through the countryside. The Virgin Mary appeared to him, uh, told him to fire an arrow and to build a, a, a church in, 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 dedicated to her wherever, it land, wherever the arrow lands. And as that, such arrows are wont to do, when he fires his arrow, it lands in a swamp in a marsh. And if you know Salisbury, you'll know very well that 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 does seem to have been the case. They seem to have chosen the most unlikely place to build their cathedral. And um, and then 150 years later, some bright spark decides um, to put the tallest spire in England on top of uh, this structure that has no adequate foundations. So what Golding's interested in in this novel, so he tells the story of the building of that spire. And what he's interested in is what would possess anyone to think that that was a good idea. Um, how did they go about doing it in the, in an engineering sense? And does it stand or or fall? And we're never quite sure as the novel goes along whether it whether it will collapse. Um, and actually, that is something that Golding's very interested in, even in earlier novels. One of the, the great themes of his work is this collision between two worldviews, if you like, the, the scientific, rational, materialist worldview and the view of faith, the numinous, the visionary, the mystical. Um, you see it in the figures of Piggy and Simon, um, respectively, in Lord of the Flies, for example. It runs all through his, his work. Um, he detects it in his parents. You know, his father is the scientist and his mother is the teller of ghost stories. So it's something that's kind of fundamental to his vision. Can you bridge these two worlds? And you might see that the spire itself, I'm talking about the, the you know, the, the object, not, not the novel. You see the spire itself as an attempt to fuse these two, that it's an engineering wonder, but it's also a diagram of prayer and an act of faith. I think that uh, there are connections between uh, the spire and something like Lord of the Flies, although the spire is is a much more complex and subtle novel in in many ways. And Burgess calls the Lord of the Flies in his review in Ninety Nine Novels. He calls the Lord of the Flies too systemized and allegorical to be regarded as a true novel. That's a, a direct quote from Burgess. Um, how does the spire avoid these supposed failings that Burgess has identified? Well, I, I think just to start with Lord of the Flies, I, I, I can understand why Burgess says that. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Although I think he's actually, paradoxically, he's putting his finger on why the novel is so popular, or why that particular novel out of all of Golding's is so popular. That there's a kind of diagrammatic neatness about Lord of the Flies that you don't get in Golding's later, more complex novels. So in Lord of the Flies, you understand that Piggy represents science and that Simon represents religion or, you know, having a hotline to God in, in some odd way. You know, Ralph is the democratic leader 
uh, Jack is the, the totalitarian leader. And the novel becomes great and interesting to the extent to which it escapes these kind of stock ideas. Um, with a, with an, by the time you get to The Spire, which is Golding's fifth novel, I think the characters are now proper. They're not just ciphers. They are proper characters within their lives. Um, they are sometimes even self-contradictory. You know, they, they, they feel human, I think, in a way that the boys of Lord of the Flies sometimes, sometimes don't. And so I, th- I, 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 I can understand Burgess's hesitation over the Lord, Lord of the Flies. And I, and I think that's probably why, um, certainly why he's chosen the Spire rather than, you know, the best known of Golding's novels. Burgess and Golding's relationship they knew each other and their relationship was was quite sort of up and down quite fractious why do you think Burgess chose the spire out of all of Golding's novels to to put on on his list and what was the novel's reputation when Burgess published his list in 1984 yeah that's a really interesting question and I guess it any answer is is part partly um speculative um clearly like you say Burgess and Golding if you like, I don't know how well they got on the, uh, as in, as human beings. They they didn't get on with each other's books always as much as as they 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 could have and maybe should have. Um, and even you know, if you read the account of the spire in in the nine in the ninety nine books, it, it it it's clear that Burgess is using praise for the spire to take a swipe at other of Golding's novels along the way. So yeah, um, why Burgess chose. Um, I mean, I, th- I think the interesting thing about the spire, if you're trying to work out why that one rather than any of the others, I think the first thing to say, and I, maybe I made this clear at the start, is that it is one of Golding's very great novels. I, I, I would say, if I had to create a league table of Golding's novels, I would say the spire and the inheritors, which is Golding's second novel, year after Lord of the Flies, um, are his two great books. So, you know, in that sense, Burgess is is merely showing, uh, uh, you know, a, a strong aesthetic judgment that the spire, the spire is one of Golding's great books. I think the other thing about the spire, if you think about Golding's reputation, you know, there, there was a kind of um, so he starts publishing in his forties. He's quite late, um, and then Lord of the Flies fifty four, The Inheritors fifty five, Pincher Martin fifty six. So it's this kind of damn burst novels year after year. Then there's a, a gap to free fall 1959 and then the spire, which he finds much, much harder to write and goes through multiple drafts and dead ends. Um, that comes out in 1964. So it takes him five years. You know, he did he, he published his first three novels in two years. So you can, you can see there's a slowing down at the very least. And so I, I think I think that. Um, also, what happens in '64 with the publication of the Spire is people have to start making a decision. Golding is no longer a new novelist with a couple of novels to his name. Now it's a question of, you know, it, it, should we be talking about Golding in the same way that we talk about, I don't know, Charles Dickens or Virginia Woolf or D.H. Lawrence? Is Golding quite that good? Are we going to put him in the canon? And so there's a split, I think, in the reception of the Spire. Um, and people finally come out of the woodwork and say, no, I don't greatly like this. Um, there's one, on the one hand, you've got, you know, Golding admirers from a very early stage, like E.M. Forster, C.S. Lewis, you know, really big names. Um, and on the other hand, you know, Golding's listening to the radio one day, a BBC radio program, book program, um, after The Spire is published. And one of the radio uh, panelists says, you know, The Spire isn't so much Wuthering Heights as Wuthering Depths. And absolutely slams the book, and Golding is traumatized by, by this to the extent to which he actually decides he's going to leave the country every time one of his books comes out. He doesn't want to hear the praise or the criticism; he just wants to hear nothing. He wants to hear silence whenever one of his books comes out. So he's very vulnerable, very thin-skinned when it when it when it comes to criticism. But it's also, I think, you know, if to go back to the question about why why this one, I think I think. Um, it is the one that therefore divides people into into groups. You know, it's the Marmite novel. I mean, I found teaching it myself. Some students absolutely love it as much as I do, and others just, you know, what the hell is this? Why are you making us read something about the 13th century uh, building a spire on a cathedral? You know, there's, there's some something um, almost absurd just about the subject matter as much as anything else. 
So I, I like to think that Burgess was actually siding with, you know, the, the the Spire was the novel that separated out the two kinds of readers of Golding, one being nonplussed and the other thinking, yeah, Golding is a great writer. I, I think that's a good description of the, of the book, because when you pick it up, especially if you're familiar with, with The Lord of the Flies or even... Uh, even the inheritors, which you mentioned, again, a, a, a wonderful novel, but but quite easy to to sort of process what's going on in the novel. Whereas the spire, right from the word go, really is is there's a lot of weird stuff happening in the novel, and it, the the story is not quite as sort of clearly defined as as some of Golding's other work. In in that respect, do you think the spire can be described as an experimental novel? I, I, th- I think it can. And again, you know, it goes back to the idea of Golding trying to make every book as, as different as possible. The one, the one reason I would hesitate to call it an experimental novel is there's a risk that that makes it sound rather too consciously determined by Golding himself, like he's sitting down thinking, OK, now I'm going to do something really revolutionary. And I think Golding was actually one of those writers who, you know, wrote the book that he had to write, if you like, without necessarily even understanding why he was writing it. Um, you notice when you read Golding's essays, uh, you know, he was always invited to give lectures and what people actually wanted was for him to tell them what Lord of the Flies meant or, you know, that would give them the kind of GCSE answer to that. And uh, he had been a school teacher, so he was actually rather good at doing that. But when Golding talks about his work, he always, to me at least, seems to diminish it. Um, you know, another writer uh, I, I think that he reminds me of in that respect is Seamus Heaney. You know, it, it's as though they, they they can't quite understand what they themselves have achieved. So I think, the, you know, Golding's novels are very often interesting to the extent to which they escape Golding's own rather slightly re- sometimes reductive uh, account of them. So I think what happens with the spire is um, if I were to think, you know, well, what, what, you know, what makes it experimental then? One of the things that Golding does, and I, I wouldn't like to say whether he knows he's doing it or not, but he's, for example, he's very, very interested in science fiction. He spends a lot of time talking to his editor, Charles Monteith at Faber, about science fiction, and Monteith keeps sending him science fiction books. And this is long before it becomes trendy to reject the idea that there's a kind of hierarchy of genres. Um, you know, there was a time, which I think has probably passed now, when people would say, oh, it's sci- it's only science fiction, you know. And one of the things Golding does is he takes things from these genre fictions, he takes techniques from science fiction, from detective fiction, and so on. And he brings them into what we might, you know, with air quotes, call um, serious highbrow fiction. And in the case of The Spire, I think what he's doing is, again, you know, you think, oh, it can't be a science fiction novel. It's set in the 13th century for a start. Um, But it has all the hallmarks of a kind of first contact science fiction novel. You've got this religious community. You've got these builders who come in from outside and threaten that way of life. And they have to bring also, and they have all sorts of technological gadgets and wizardry and skills, which leave the original community completely perplexed. Um, that, that, that allow them, you know, that allow this invasive army to to achieve its goals. Um, so, uh, and there's a detective fiction element as well. I think you know one of the characters. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but one of the characters disappears partway through the novel. And we don't the narrative voice, if you like, doesn't doesn't explain how they've disappeared or why they've disappeared. But there are clues in it that if we're paying a lot of attention and we're very practiced at reading (laughs) detective fiction, because I I didn't notice the first time around, um, then we understand something of what's happened to this character before the revelation towards the end of the novel. So I think Gold, Golding is very open to uh, bringing into the, the highbrow novel, I keep using that phrase, it's not a very good phrase, but it might be a sort that they might have been thinking about at the time, um, it, some of the techniques of, of these genre fictions. Yeah, I, and I think when you pick it up, um, the way you've described it there, when, when you start reading the book, uh, it is a historical novel, but it feels really contemporary. It feels um, to the point where I, I was reading it for the first time and I thought, hang on a minute, is this a historical novel or is this a contemporary novel? I don't I don't understand because the language used is quite 
sort of up to date and and some of the the devices used are are sort of very very uh, contemporary or, or at least uh uh they they are sort of familiar to readers of the the 20th century novel the the spire i mean we can't avoid the fact that the spire clearly has a religious subject matter but it's such a layered novel i was wondering if there are any other ways of reading the novel that go beyond divinity in the church yeah i of course i think one of the things that burgess was reacting to in his comments about golding early on you know burgess keeps using this phrase the problem of evil and golding partly through his own fault actually i think gets perceived fairly early on in his career as this rather kind of humorless bearded sage who's constantly wringing his hands about uh, humanity's propensity to sin and um, Burgess doesn't like that at all. Um, now, uh, as it happened, I, I think you know, Golding has fought in the Second World War. He's seen terrible things. People have died beside him in the most appalling circumstances. You know, Golding knows about man's inhumanity to man. And I think actually the thing uh, that strikes me about these early novels isn't so much that there's a problem of evil. You know, evil is just a, a in Golding's world, just a, just a thing, just an undeniable fact. It's just there. It's the problem of goodness that's it, that I think really interests Golding, that why in such a world will you have, for instance, a Simon figure in Lord of the Flies who who is self-sacrificial, who is prepared to die for uh, his, his worldview and for this vision that is beyond the, the reach of most, most of his... Um, of the other boys on the, on the island. So Golding's, I think, you know, he, he is in a sense theological, but if you then take what I just said and think about it in relation to the spire, yes, obviously there's a religious setting, but I think what Golding is most interested in there is the, and, and sometimes it, it's a religious question, but it doesn't have to be, is the notion of sacrifice. So the novel opens with, light streaming into the cathedral through stained glass and lighting up Jocelyn, the main character who's responsible for the spire getting built. And Jocelyn's having some kind of ecstatic vision and tears are falling and so on. And the um, the thing is that the stained glass, he just tells us in passing, the stained glass that the, the, the light is passing through is an image of Abraham and Isaac you know, the ultimate sacrifice, you sacrifice your only son because God, for some bizarre reason, without explanation, tells you to. And all the way through, you get this question of what are you prepared to sacrifice in order to achieve your vision? And now, obviously, Jocelyn's vision is a religious one. He's had a visionary experience and he's been told in this vision or believes he has to to, to build the spire. But it's also true of, you know, it's it's... It, so religion is, if you like, the religious context is the setting, but it's true of much of human endeavor, much of human civilization. You know, the old Benjamin stuff about civilization and barbarism. Um, it's all bound together that whatever you're attempting to achieve, you have to sacrifice something, which is fine when it's you doing the sacrificing. But of course, the spire points out that there are many people, you know, the collateral damage there are many people who don't have a choice, who don't have agency, and whose fates are determined by Jocelyn in his blind insistence that he's going to build this spire no matter what. So yes, that it's a kind of religious question um, in the spire, but it's not it's not limited, I think, to religion. And and what does Golding have to say about about the sort of human? element of of being a religious person yeah that's a, it's a really interesting point and and it actually occurred to me um all those years ago in 2001 that the spire was a novel for that occasion i remember john carey after the attack on the twin towers i think it was john carey writing an article saying um, you know, we can never read Milton's Samson Agonistes the same way again. You know, here we are. Here's our, our Christian hero bringing down the um, the, the temple onto the heads of the uh, of the audience and, and killing them. Um, and this is presented as a heroic act that we approve of. And now we kind of understand what, what that means. Um, and I think the spire 
absolutely is speaking to that particular worldview of um, the, the person that might be so committed to a vision that they are willing to destroy the lives of many other people at the same time. Now, it's not, I'm not trying to, when I say that, it's not that Jocelyn, you know, the, the 13th century uh, religious figure is, is in some way a, a, a akin, a, entirely akin to what you might call a modern day terrorist. But I think there's something of that same desire and ambition in Jocelyn, which actually blocks out and makes him um, unable to appreciate the individuality of uh, the people around him. So I, th- I think in that respect, you know, the spire already knows what, what we learn in 2000, in, 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 or what, what many people learned in, in that attack on, on, on New York. Um, and so I think it does read in a different way and Jocelyn becomes much less sympathetic, I think, to to, to readers in in that sort of context. Uh, yeah, and in in terms of his desire, his the, there is it's sort of a muddled thing in Jocelyn's mind because his desire to build the the spire, you think, is the the ultimate sort of desire. The, the his ultimate sort of drive is to build this spire, but as the novel goes on, his desire turns to. Uh, a sort of sexual desire um, for for some of the or for one of the women characters in particular, and and this brings me to to my next question, which is that this is this a novel primarily about men, um, and and what role do the women characters play in the story? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I I think I think that on the face of it, and what what you might predict given the the setting of it, it it, it would be a novel of, of, about men. You know, the, the, there is this enclosed uh, religious community around a cathedral in the 13th century. Of course, the the power brokers, you might say, the important people in that community are going to be male. And there aren't going to be many female many women present anyway um and i think though what you find in the novel is that i mean there there are at least there are three i think three characters who are i wouldn't quite say major characters because there's only one major character and that's the main character jocelyn but there are three women characters who are significant in the novel and it's a it's a golden trick actually you see it in other novels as well it's a third person narrative but but that perspective um, through which we see the, the, the world is actually determined by the, the the limitations of the main character of Jocelyn. So we see all the other characters through the prism of, of, of Jocelyn's worldview. And what we find, as you say, is actually that the so we see that we see the other characters. Um, we, we can. It's interesting what Golding does. This is another whodunit technique, I think. Actually, that we we can actually understand more than Jocelyn can understand, even though we're seeing through his eyes, because he doesn't always understand what he's seeing. Um, that happens in um, rites of passage, for example, where you know, the the character's writing a diary, and we know more of what's going on than the character who's who's who's, who's the diarist. Um, so this, what this means in the spire is that we can be surprised by the inner life of characters who appear at first through Jocelyn's lens to be rather limited. Um, And that's certainly true of the women characters. So there's the woman, Rachel, who's married to the the master builder, Roger. Um, And she's just presented as a kind of shrewish, garrulous woman, you know, quite a a stock figure in, in effect. And... It's not that she is that, it's that that's the only way in which Jocelyn can understand her and can appreciate her. And she, like the other two women, actually kind of comes alive and surprises Jocelyn and escapes his blinkered view of her um, as the as the novel progresses. So we're surprised by the inner lives of these characters who'd we di- who we dismissed as two-dimensional previously. So in that sense, yes, it's dominated by men, and yes, it's the male gaze through which we see, but the male gaze is actually found wanting by uh, the way that the novel unfolds. Yeah, and I, I think Jocelyn's weaknesses sort of manifest when he's he's either thinking about women or or interacting with the women. He he 
it seems that he doesn't have the power in that relationship. It, he he is sort of weak when it comes to certainly the character of Goody Pagnell, um, his sort of uh, platonic ideal of what woman should be, essentially. Um, uh, so the spire itself, the way it's written, the, some of the imagery that, that is in the spire seems to be uh, born out of a, a rich heritage of other literature. Uh, when I think about the imagery, I, I, I think about the work of the metaphysical poets. Uh, I'm not sure if Golding was reading those poets when he was writing this book, but it, it strikes me as a similar work. Um, how, how does the novel enter into conversation with, with its influences? I always kind of hesitate, actually, I'm doing it right now, when I think about Golding and influence. Um, we think about Golding and sources quite easily, you know, famously Lord of the Flies and Ballantyne's The Coral Island, where Gold, Golding exposes the the kind of Victorian colonial fantasy, benign colonial fantasy of, of, of Ballantyne's vision, where, you know, the English boys get shipwrecked and they, they civilise and they Christianise um, the natives, the savages, in quotation marks. Um, so Lord of the Flies exposes and overturns that. So Golding, and he does the same in The Inheritors, where he's attacking H.G. Wells's view of ne- Neanderthal man. Um, so he often has this antagonistic relationship with sources. I think when it comes to the spire, there isn't a source of that kind. I mean, pe- people go source hunting all the time, obviously. It's what what we as academics are sometimes paid to do. But you, you know, some people mention things like Ibsen's The Master Builder and so on. I think I think though that the the novel the novelist the write the prose writer whom I'm most reminded of when I read The Spire um is is Rudyard Kipling and I think what Golding and Kipling no I I'd rather say it was an affinity than an influence but I I think what they they both have in what they share is a they are if you like engineer novelists they like to know how things work so Kipling, you know, a character in a Kipling story can't can't be on a ship without wondering how the rivets are holding the structure together or how the engine works. And Golding has exactly the same thing. He tells us that he wrote the spire. He was actually working in the school next door to Salisbury Cathedral, Bishop Wordsworth School, almost literally in the shadow of the spire. Um, And the way that he worked out, like the technological details about how the builders went about uh, constructing this architectural marvel um, without adequate foundations uh, was that he walked around and around and around the cathedral looking up and just trying to work it out for himself. Um, so I think uh, Kipling, as I say, is, is the, there's actually a story by Kipling called The Eye of Allah, which is set in a, um, a religious community. And what happens is one one of the the people in it go, goes away and comes back with this new invention from a far flung place. I think it's from Granada, and it's a um, microscope. And they look through the microscope and they see this teeming life, this universe of life that the church doesn't know about and that they don't know about. And what's its theological status? And is this scary or wonderful? And in the end, the microscope is thrown on the fire and the lens is smashed because it's decided that they're just not ready for this new wisdom, this new uh, knowledge. And so even there, you've got the collision between faith and reason or faith faith and science that you find a lot in Golding. And, And I think the eye of Allah for me, if I absolutely had to say find a text and say that has an influence i it would probably that be that that story by kipling that's really interesting when you're reading the spire of course you you do feel i'm not sure how ac- accurate all the sort of medieval engineering is in the book but it feels accurate doesn't it it's sort of uh, um it's blended with the sort of more metaphysical stuff but the like roger mason the builder is is talking about the way they build the spire and the the wooden struts going up the inside of the the spire and that sort of thing and it feels tangible and real doesn't it yeah it does it's for, for me it's the the best part of the book i have to say i love those descriptions other people might want to skip them altogether i don't know but they it, it, like you say you know i don't i i can't say obviously that the masons did it that way um 
but it has the ring of authenticity and Golding clearly is a very practical engineering type writer who loves that kind of detail and who loves working it out you know he does it in in uh, uh, other books as well uh, I mentioned Rites of Passage earlier you know that sea trilogy where it's 1810 roughly and they're sailing all the way to Australia from from England and they have to get there in one piece and the, it's an old ship and it's kind of falling apart and they have to try all sorts of new techniques just just to stop stop themselves from sinking uh, Golding loves all of that. I think it might be partly the sailor in him as well. He was a rather obsessive sailor who who nearly got himself killed on several occasions as a consequence. Um, but he he you know he has that nous that technological know how to to describe those passages with absolute authenticity. Yeah, and and the spire. It's the dominant image in in the book. Obviously, it's the title of the book. It's about building a spire, but as an image, it's uh, it's used in several different ways. At one point, the the sort of model of the church is described as a a man lying on his back with his uh, erection in the air. Yeah, um, but uh, that the the spire dominates until right at the very end, the last chapter, uh, in which Jocelyn replaces his obsession with a vision of a tree. What do you think this means? How does it un- unlock the thematic core of the novel? Yeah, that this, this is really tricky. I've read this book so often and I'm still not sure I can actually answer that question. Um, I Clearly, I think the first thing to say, as you, as you quite rightly say, is Gold, Golding has the issue of, you know, the kind of snickering um, attitude to the spire. Obviously, it's a phallus, you know, and he actually overcomes this problem by saying on page two of the novel, obviously it's a phallus, um, not in quite those words, but but pretty much, you know, like you say, that the church is the body and then springing, erupting from the middle of it is this, you know, et cetera. Uh, and so he gets over that by facing it head on. In fact, one of the builders rips the, um, the wooden model apart, takes the spire off and starts dancing with it between his legs at one point in case we're still in any doubt at all. But the way I think the Golden gets beyond this is actually the spire. Yes, the spire is a phallus and it's kind of representing uh, Jocelyn's repressed desire for, for Goody Pangle and so on. But the spire is also a spine. It's also a diagram of prayer. It's also a rather lovely image of an upward waterfall. Uh, it's a dunce's cap. And like you say, at the end, it's a, an apple tree. In fact, in the draft, in one of the drafts, it's a cherry tree and it's changed to an apple tree quite quite late on. And I think that the thing about the spire is it's, it's, it's everything and nothing um, as a symbol. You know, it, it, we, we, we see what we, what we want to see and we see our own preoccupations in it. I think there's a, for me, there's a slight risk of thinking, oh, Jocelyn's finally, you know, we like, we like to think, don't we, that a character goes on a, a journey in the course of a book and is wiser at the end than at the beginning. Um, so that the last thing that Jocelyn describes the spire as, in this case, the apple tree, must be some kind of ultimate wisdom. Um, so I think I'm slightly hesitant about that. But um, the idea of the apple tree, of course, you think about that, is this Genesis, you know, are we talking about a tree of good and evil, whatever? I think probably to some extent we have to be. But the other thing about the apple tree being he's just been admiring a tree and admiring its, if you like, its organic beauty. And he sees the spire in that way. So um, finally, um, the spire seems something natural rather than this kind of monstrous intrusion on the community around him. So the novel was written nearly 60 years ago. Um, But it seems to me... uh, that it's a very relevant novel. Do you think the the novel remains relevant today? And and why do you think people should read it now? Yeah, I, I, I guess it depends on what we mean by relevant. And Golding himself, when he published this novel in 1964, he was actually worried that the whole issue of the subject matter. Why would anyone want to read this sort of novel right now? It's not like there weren't other things going on in 1964, you know, politically and socially. It was quite an exciting time one way or another. And it does seem willfully perverse to be, you know, rising to the occasion by, okay, I'm just going to ignore all of that. I'm going to take myself off to 13th century England and uh, provincial England and 
see how they put a spire on a cathedral. So, go, you know, the novel obviously survives its subject matter and people obviously bought it and, and loved it. And I think so when we talk about relevance, we're not talking about the news, the latest news headlines and how it engages with, with them. We're, we're talking about something, and this I think would please Golding uh, because he tended to think in this way. We're talking about something fundamental about the human condition. And I guess what was true in 1964 is still true today uh, about those things. You know, I, I mentioned the uh, the terrorist attacks in 2001, um, but it, you know, it 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 speaks the same way today about our goals and our ambitions and our tendency to ignore the sufferings of others and so on, just as it did as it did then. And the the other reason for anyone to read it, as far as I'm concerned, is. Um, and I think, as far as insofar as Burgess was concerned, as well, is it's a it's just a great novel. It's just a great book. Um, it's one of those books that you read and you think. When I read it, I, I you think, "Wow, how did he do that?" So uh, you know, I can't, I can't. In the end, that's why we read, isn't it? Yeah, I, I suppose when I was reading it, I I was thinking that, that the world, especially now, I don't know if it's a, a, a new development of human history, but the world seems to be sort of full of the same kind of hubris of Jocelyn and the, the same kind of of sort of confidence. Uh, and, you know, whether or not that's folly or not, it, it just seemed to be a novel that that resonated about many of the, the sort of things to me it was like it was like twitter almost you know people sort of um so sure in their opinions and in their in their ways of fixing the world on on the internet and it just seemed to resonate with that sort of way of thinking that it seemed to be golding was commenting on that even though the novel was written 60 years ago so uh it it definitely felt vital to me when i was when i was reading it yeah, that, that's a really good and interesting point, which I hadn't thought about. I, I think the other thing, of course, and, and this is, if you like, less fashionable, um, but it affects many people, is is um, religious certainty. And, and what do you do with um, vision? You know, if you're singled out, as Jocelyn is, by some sort of message or what you take to be a message from uh, the divine, what do you what do you do with that? How do you trust it? To what extent should you trust it? And um, so, yeah, I absolutely right. Whether it's in the political sphere or the religious sphere, what it's saying is that certainty is a very very dangerous uh, thing that can destroy people's lives. I, I I think that what you say is is absolutely right, and I can see the social media aspect of it very much. That brings us to to the final question on on the spire. What what's the novel's legacy? Uh, are there any other writers working today who whose work shows the influence of Golding? So there's two two slightly different questions there because of course the the obvious answer to the influence of Golding is Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies requires its own answer here because the next Netflix dystopian series that we watch will be in some way distantly or not uh, um, influenced by. Lord of the Flies. Um, Lord of the Flies is everywhere in our in our culture. Um, so uh, Stephen King, for example, who's just written the foreword to um, the, the new paper edition of Lord of the Flies, um, you know the place names in his um, uh, in the township that he writes about are place names that he's taken from the island on Lord of the Flies. So you, you can't be um, less subtle than that in your acknowledging of a debt. Um, so Lord of the Flies, if you put that to one side and just say, yes, Lord of the Flies is obviously part of our culture and it's everywhere. And then you think about the rest of Golding. I think, you know, the, the, you notice that a novel like The Inheritors started popping up. Uh, Penelope Lively fairly recently said it was one of her great 20th century novels that she keeps returning to. Um, as for the spire itself, I think that's a little bit trickier. I don't know how you could I don't know what being influenced by the spire would look like because it's just in so so many ways very esoteric. Um, there was a novel I read fairly recently by uh, Susanna Clarke called Piranesi, which I think is a fantastic novel. 
and it did keep reminding me of Golding. And I, I thought, oh, okay, I'll, ta- I'll, pu- I'll put into Google Susanna Clark, William Golding, and just see if she's ever said anything about him. And the first item that came up was by a friend of mine, Arabella Curry, who had already written an article exactly the same thought processes about has Susanna Clark read William Golding because this reminds me a bit, a bit of him. So he's there in the air but I, I i don't know how many young novelists are actually reading william i mean presumably they're reading him a lot of them are uh, but whether there's a kind of school of golding i think one of golding's problems it goes back to what i said earlier was that he's you know the, the what what is the golding style every book is trying to do something different and the other thing is he's in so many ways an outlier he he even at the time you know he wasn't part of a wasn't part of a trend or a fashion. It was very hard to group him with other writers. He never quite fitted in. So it would be hard to think about what what a young novelist influenced by Golding would actually sound like uh, today. So I, I, he, he's there, but he's, I think, mostly invisible, uh, unless we're talking about Lord of the Flies. One last question. We, it's a question we ask everybody who comes on the 99 Novels podcast. If you could choose a hundredth book to round out Burgess's list, what would it be and why? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. It gives 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 uh, the um, interviewee uh, a chance to be as be very self indulgent. Um, I th- well, I was looking through the list. All sorts of amazing books on that list. I loved the, the fact that uh, Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban is there, which always strikes me as a cross between The Clockwork Orange and, and The Inheritors, um, and and is a masterpiece. Um, there were gaps, as you would expect, on anybody's list. Where's Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie, for example? Um, but I think the, the the bias that I noticed uh, most prominently is is the underrepresentation of women. So I think eighty eight out of ninety nine of the books are by by men. Uh, so you know it's eight to one. So I was thinking, who you know who's who's missing then? Um, there's no Ursula K. Le Guin. There's no Penelope Fitzgerald. Both, I think, major major writers. Um, the book I so I was trying to think you know, a book by a woman, and the one that I came up with that I just think is the perfect book actually is uh, from 1958. It's Tom's Midnight Garden by Philippa Pierce, and either Burgess didn't read it, which is quite possible, or um, he uh, dismissed it because it's normally ghettoized, I suppose, as as children's fiction. And when it comes to children's fiction, it's absolutely canonical. You know, so it won the Carnegie Medal, and when it was published, and when they did a seventy years of the Carnegie Medal um, uh, in about twenty two thousand and eight, uh, it came second behind Pullman's uh, Northern Lights. Pullman said, you know, he was he won because of recency bias, and of course, it should have been Tom's Midnight Garden that, that, that won the prize, which was very very generous of him. And uh, if you haven't read it, um, it's a novel in well, Tom is a young boy, and he is packed off to stay with his aunt and uncle because his brother has contracted measles. They don't want him to get infected. So his aunt and uncle live in a flat in this large Victorian house, and so he goes to stay there. And um, at one point, this Victorian house has had huge grounds attached, but in at some stage, they've been sold off, and it's now a modern housing estate. Nevertheless, when the grand clock in the hallway sounds midnight, it actually chimes 13 times and Tom can wander out into the Victorian garden, which is there in its pristine, undeveloped state. And there he can see the family, the Victorian family that live there. They can't see him with two exceptions. One is the gardener who assumes he's a malign spirit of some kind. And the other is a little girl called Hattie. And what happens is Tom befriends Hattie and they have various adventures together. So Tom is aging one day at a time or one night at a time. Um, Hattie is aging in uh, fits and starts, you know, years at a time. Um, So she starts off much smaller than Tom and ends up being a young woman, whereas Tom's the same age as he was when he started. So it's a novel about childhood. It's a novel about loss and melancholy, beautiful descriptions of, of, of landscape. And I have to say, I, very, very, very few books have ever made me uh, cry. But this is the one that does it every time, even though I know the ending before, before I, I know what's going to happen before I get to it. It is the most beautifully poignant ending. 
Um, I won't describe it because uh, I hope people who haven't read it will go away and read the book. But it, 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 even talking about it now, I feel my welling up slightly. And it seems to me to be the not just the perfect children's novel, but it, it stands comparison with the very best of adult fiction that, that, that's, I, that's, that, that was written at the time. I didn't read it when I was a child. I didn't have it read to me. I read it as a, it's one of the benefits of being a parent is you get to read all these amazing children's books. And the one that really, really stood out for me was, was Tom's Midnight Garden by Philippa Pierce. That's a, a great choice. And it, it's actually a book that loomed quite large in my childhood. I think if I remember correctly, the, the BBC did a, an adaptation of it in the 1980s. And I remember reading the book and watching the TV show. Um, and it, it, it's, I, as you described it, my sort of childhood flashed before my eyes. Um, so it's a great choice. Um, Tim, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. It's been a real pleasure to, to learn more about William Golding. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to 99 Novels a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Black Ops and Beaver Bombing by Tim Kendall and Fiona Matthews will be published in spring 2023 and is available for pre-order at all good bookshops. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor and is performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.